Welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast, a platform for women in agriculture, ranching, homesteading, and more to share their stories. I'm your host, Caitlin Dubin. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. Today we get to hear from my friend, Kelsey Jorison. Kelsey is also a first-generation female farmer. She's an author, self-proclaimed crazy chicken lady, and an advocate for all things sustainability. But before we get to Kelsey's episode, I'd like to take some time to thank our sponsor, The Red Barn Co., for their support of the Rural Woman podcast. Celebrate life in the country, whether you're a farmer, rancher, or live in a small community. They've got something for you. All of their designs are printed on premium quality apparel, guaranteed to become your new well-loved favorite. As a listener to the Rural Woman podcast, you can save 10% on your next order when you use the promo code WILDROSE10 at checkout. So make sure you head over to redbarnco.ca and check them out. I'll make sure to link them in the show notes. I also have a special announcement that I will be chatting about at the end of this episode, so make sure you stay tuned until the end. And without further ado, here's Kelsey. Hey, Kelsey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I am doing so good. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rural Woman podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored that you asked to have me on. Kelsey, it has been a pleasure getting to know you over on Instagram for, I think it's been about a year now that we've... Yeah, I was thinking about that today too. It's been like almost a full year since we all started chatting. And it has been one of the best, most supportive communities I have ever been a part of. And I am so excited for my listeners today to get to know you a little bit better. So for those of you who follow me on Instagram, you probably already know who Kelsey is because I think I'm her number one fangirl of <laughs> reposting everything Kelsey posts. So You're so sweet. Yes, I was I'm like, yay, Caitlin's got my back. <laughs> 100% all the time. So for those who don't know who Kelsey Jorison is, give us a little bit of history and your background. Awesome. Yeah, totally. So I am a first-generation female farmer, and we have Green Willow Homestead here in southeastern Wisconsin. We've got five acres. It's beautiful. We do pastured chickens. We grow vegetables. We have orchards. And we practice what is called permaculture, which I'm sure we'll get into a lot more with this podcast. But I am originally from Cottage Grove, Minnesota. It's a tiny suburb outside the Twin Cities. And I did, like I said, I did not grow up on a farm. I grew up in a suburb. Uh, But I had two friends who had farms. One was like your big conventional style farm with corn and soy. And the other one was more of a hobby farm. And I would spend so many days after school, you know, hanging out with them, running through the cornfields, playing with the goats. And I just... I fell in love with it. And I would always ask my parents, like, why can't we have a farm? You know? <laughs> and I'd look at, like, open tracts of land and be like, mom and dad, do you think that they have horses? Like, do you think they'd let me ride their horses if I just knocked on their door? <laughs> um, and those two friends then got me involved in 4-H, which – ironically enough, is what got me into photography and acting, which I pursued in college. So I didn't have animals to show doing 4-H, but I still participated through a lot of the competitions they had in photography and drawing. And then they had this program called Arts In, where we would 
put on a show two times a day at the center of the county fair. It was kind of like a review song and dance. And I just like fell in love with it and felt so comfortable on stage. From there, I applied to DePaul's theater school in Chicago, got accepted, and got my BFA in fine arts, and or got my BFA in acting and photography. And then upon graduation, I stayed in Chicago for a while. I did two national tours, acting and moving around the country. It was a lot. It was fun. And I also worked as a filmmaker. I wrote, produced, and directed a long-form web series called The Dreamers. So a very eclectic background to farming. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, the starving artist mentality, for sure. But then I met Paul, my fiancé, and... We promptly, we promptly decided to like t- exit stage left and move in with his parents, quit our jobs, and start an e-commerce business like crazy people. Um, we had both done some reading, and we really were just sick of the jobs that we were working. We were sick of city life, and his he grew up in northern Wisconsin, so a tiny little town called Webster. And I met him actually because our both our sets of parents live on the same lake. Uh, my parents now, that was their summer home, so they retired there, and that's where they live now. But Paul and I moved back in with his parents and literally launched a startup out of the basement of his parents' home <laughs> and uh, worked on that for about a year. And I then decided to film a second season of the long-form web series that I directed and produced. So I went back to Chicago, and we maintained a long-distance relationship. We kept our e-commerce business going. And Paul was at EAA, the Experimental uh, Airplane Association Festival, which is also in Wisconsin. And he met um, the HR lady to another startup for an aviation company, and she basically offered him a job on the spot. And we thought long and hard about it. We, At this point, we knew that we really wanted our own place. We didn't want to live with his parents forever. And I really wanted to start gardening and having chickens. And, you know, that that was not possible on his parents' property. That was not possible in Chicago. And in order to, you know, qualify for a mortgage, one of us needed to have an actual job. <laughs> so, Uh, He decided to take the job, and we immediately started looking for a little bit of acreage to get started with homesteading. You know, we we wanted to be more self-sufficient. We knew we wanted land, and that's that's how we found our farm, Greenwell Homestead. That's kind of – that's my origin story. That is a story of epic proportion. I know. It's crazy. (laughs) You went from to the exact opposite – I know. I know. I always like to say, you guys, in the same year, I walked the red carpet and adopted my first flock of chickens. Like, those things happened within a year of each other. (laughs) Oh, my goodness, Kelsey. Yeah, crazy. That's so great. Well, now that you are a full-fledged farmer, tell us about what a typical day looks like for you on Green Willow Homestead. So right now, things are kind of quiet. We haven't really started planting yet. Um, Our last frost date is April 15th. So this weekend I plan on getting started with some seeding and getting my tomatoes and peppers started. Uh, And the chickens are still in the barn. They're not in their chicken tractors yet because our pasture is still pretty brown. Uh, But when it's the height of the season, it's, you know, 
feed, water, moving the tractors, checking on the birds, doing routine vet care, gardening, mulching, composting, spraying with holistic fertilizers, making holistic fertilizers, picking food, harvesting food, opening up the farm stand, talking with customers. And then, you know, there's the other side of it that a lot of people don't realize, which is sending emails and getting on social media, doing my marketing online to get people excited about our farm stand to grow our customer base. So there's a lot of work at a desk, too, when it comes to being a farmer, as well as being outside and enjoying the sunshine. But they balance each other out, which is nice. I really like that. I think the paperwork is the absolute killer and the bane of my existence and Justin's yeah. existence, too. It, I, w- I know that they're, like, automating those processes. Like, I know things are getting better, like with technology to make these processes easier. But still, yeah, I agree. Paul and I did taxes yesterday, and I was like, I want to die. <laughs> I am sitting here looking at the stack of papers to do my taxes, and it is oh. on my to-do list on Sunday, and I'm oh. not looking forward to it. May the force be with you. <laughs> so you talked a little bit about your farm stand. Can you tell us more about that and how you got started with it? For sure. Um, so I, when we moved to our property, I was still in a place of wanting to just be a homesteader wanting to be self-sufficient, grow as much of our own food as possible, you know, take care of our five acres, leave it better than we found it. And something started to shift for me the more that I read about restorative agriculture. And I knew that I wanted to bring, you know, all this healthy food that we're growing to my community as well. So I... I realize that there's like not a lot of resources out there for starting your own farm stand. And I see that as an opportunity now that I've done it. And I think I'm like, oh, I should maybe write about the process and everything I learned getting my farm stand off the ground and share that with others. So thinking about doing that. But, you know, we have less than 100 hens. Like we're not a major operation. It's it's manageable for me to do all on my own because this is my thing. Paul, he has his full-time job. He did not grow up wanting to have a farm or be a homesteader. He's supportive and awesome. And, you know, he's my engineering inclined guy. So he helps me with lots of problems on the farm when I need help. But most of this is me and it's my passion. So, and you know what? There was some friction when we first started. I had expectations that he would get excited about it, even though, it, and then he didn't. And that, and until I took a step back and realized, you know what? It is not fair of me to put upon, you know, my expectations of him and his relationship with the farm. I really, all that's in my control is how I feel about the farm and how I feel about Paul. So, I went to work on those two things and it's been like, you know, roses ever since. So I do ask him for help when I need it. But most of the stuff that I do here on the farm, I do it all by myself. Um, I actually had a moment last week. I was like, Paul, you literally haven't seen the chickens in a month. He's like, yeah, no, I haven't walked back there in like a month because the snow and the ice is awful. I was like, I go back there every day. But getting the farm stand off the ground was a lot of fun. I had so much fun designing it, you know, planning how I wanted it to look. We have put off working on our house just because we didn't know what to do because it's like a 1950s style ranch and it's just awkward as hell. So we've been working on the land so much in Paul's workshop in the barn. So in doing the farm stand, I felt like I got to like exercise my interior designer skills a little bit, which was so fun. (laughs) It was so fun to like Joanna Gaines the crap out of that little building. Um, So 
I was, you know, I went to Goodwill. I got a bunch of supplies there for baskets, harvest, like displays and whatnot. Everything was secondhand or made ourselves. The signs I completely made ourselves. And, you know, thought long and hard about how I wanted to exchange money and settled on an honesty system because I'd like my community to think that I trust them. So it's great. Like I open it up at eight o'clock in the morning and people come fill out a deposit log, drop their money in. If they see me, I come over and say hi. But if not, I'll, you know, close it up at the end of the day and look and be like, oh, I made, you know, X amount of money and I didn't even have to be here for it. It's almost like passive income. (laughs) Almost. (laughs) Aside from like all the work that I'm doing while people are coming to and fro without me having to be there. But yeah, that's our, that's our little farm stand story. That's awesome. So you mentioned about learning more about restorative agriculture and uh, sustainability, I guess, for your homestead. Can you tell us the different methods that you use to be sustainable on your homestead with your land and with your chickens? Yes, absolutely. So we are a permaculture farm, meaning that we believe in the concept of permanent agriculture. So We like to shy away from growing annuals like corn and soy, which you typically think of when you think of farm. So we we shy away from growing annuals like corn and soy because those can have an extremely high overhead to get started with. And I also feel that they have a pretty high environmental cost when they're raised in a monocropping system. And mind you, we still grow annual vegetables every year like tomatoes and peppers, but we like to grow the ones that require minimal processing to eat and enjoy. So we gravitate towards growing perennials and you know they give a return year after year with a lot fewer external inputs. And right now on the farm, we're working towards establishing multiple fruit tree guilds, which is uh, where a nut or a fruit tree is the focal point. And then around the tree, we plant these perennial supporting characters, as I like to say. And they're either edible, medicinal, or pollinator-friendly, things like mushrooms, herbs, wildflowers. And the system, the relationship of these numerous plants to one another is self-sustaining. So planting these fruit tree guilds has proven to us over the last three years that it is really possible to grow food without using chemical fertilizers and pesticides, herbicides. And in experiencing this, I feel that we can feed the world with regenerative agriculture, and we don't need hundreds and hundreds of acres of monocropped fruits, vegetables, corn, and soy to do so. And, you know, I I would really like to expand on the numbers with annual edible crops in the U.S. for just a second, if that's okay. Go for it. Yes. Okay. So as I got interested in permanent agriculture, permaculture, I, I'm not the type of person to just like go immediately with her gut. Like I need stats, Caitlin. <laughs> I'm like, I need information, like concrete numbers. And I kept asking myself, you know, is it possible to feed the world with a perennial cropping system versus an annual cropping system? So I took a step back and I asked, you know, just how much corn that's being grown in the U.S. is actually feeding human beings? And looking, you know, at the USDA stats, it's only 2.7% of corn that's actually going to feed human beings. And then I'm like, okay, 2.7%. Well, then what about the rest of it? Like, what what's happening to the rest of this annual crop? Well, 43% of it is going to feed livestock, which, okay, yeah, that then, of course, goes to feed us. But then I took another step back and I was like, well, these animals did not evolve to eat massive amounts of grain. And instead of putting them on grassland where they belong and where they actually could help curb climate change through carbon sequestration, 
we grow the grain in a monoculture in one spot, and then we ship it to the cows in another spot. And then in doing so, we add to this carbon footprint of producing meat. Like, Caitlin, how does this make sense? It simply does not make sense. I, I know. Okay, so like going back to growing car- corn and how much does it actually feed us? Well, the rest of it, 30% goes to ethanol fuel, 15% is exported to other countries, and then 7.7% is used for industrial purposes. So instead, the question is not can permanent agriculture feed the world, but is our current system of annual cropping feeding the world right now? And is it feeding the world without hurting the environment and also hurting our own health? Like with corn alone, that's only 2.7 going directly to human consumption. And, you know, this argument doesn't even touch on the nutritional quality and availability of annual crops. Like corn is not a complete food or even an edible food until it goes through a number of chemical processes that render it palatable. And the same argument can be made for things like soy from a nutritional standpoint. So as I researched more and more the differences between annual edible agriculture and perennial agriculture, I believe that there is so much to be gained in a system that builds soil, that maintains and boosts the health of an ecosystem that is self-sustaining, has a really low overhead, and on top of all of that is nutritionally sound. So, and I want like a bit of a disclaimer, like This is not to say that annual crop farmers are the devil. Like, I have future in-laws who are annual crop farmers, and I have dear, dear friends who farm on an annual system. And the reality is they have been taught a certain way. They've been told they only have a certain set of specific tools to use to be successful. And I don't believe it's their fault that we're at this crossroads with agriculture. I think there's so many factors that have led us down this road. And I, our main goal with the farm is to be as self-sustaining as possible with little to no external inputs like fertilizer, chicken feed, purchase seed. And, you know, this is not only for financial reasons, but it's also for the overall carbon footprint of the farm. And one of the best examples right now for us that I'm really excited about is we are swapping out the need for organic fish and seaweed emulsion, which like organic farmers and gardeners just like love. And it's it's awesome. Like, believe me, I love fish and seaweed emulsion. We've used it on our farm, but it's expensive and it comes from a long way. And instead, we're creating our own fertilizer on the farm using chicken manure and we're growing comfrey and we're making our own aerated compost tea to use on our crops and trees and whatnot. And that's been going really well. We did it. We were able to accomplish that late last season and I'm really excited to get the process going again. We uh, started our own comfrey. We like got 14 root cuttings it's been awesome. But, you know, what we've seen using these perennial systems is an abundance of wildlife, the return of wetland ecosystems on our farm, and just like massive amounts of pollinators. There are so many butterflies and bees, and that was just not the case when we first moved here. I was almost kind of heartbroken. I was like, oh, we moved to the country, and like literally there's no wildlife. (laughs) So we've been able to make quite the turnaround in our few years being here, and it's been really inspiring. But as for the chickens, uh, we raised them on pasture. We built our own mobile chicken tractors that are beautiful and durable, and I love looking at them and using them. And we, you know, we talked about my farm stand. We opened that up in the spring of 2018. And right now we're like, okay, we've kind of hit our supply ceiling. Like we constantly sell out of eggs. And we're just like, with five acres we're, we're zoned in a way with the municipal, our municipality's code, we can only have 20 birds per acre. So our ceiling is about 90 birds. And 
we already have hit the supply ceiling with 90 birds producing eggs every day. So it's just like, oh, I wish that I wish that we could have more chickens because you totally could have more chickens. The municipality's code is a little bit out of touch with the reality of, of farming with, uh, with poultry. But alas, here we are. It's fun. I'm loving every second of it. <laughs> That's great. Um, we are making our own compost tea this year too. It's our first yes. year doing it. Last year we, we bought some and like you said, it comes from a long ways away or at least for us yeah. it did. And to cut down on that cost and the environmental effects of shipping yep. all, all of that all the way we we this year and it has been an interesting process. That is awesome. I'm so proud. You have to like get on Instagram with that because I want to see how you do that. Well, after I am done here, I am heading out to the shop to do beer mints on some different seeds. So maybe I'll have to shoot that. Yes, I would love that. Uh, Kelsey, what are some of the biggest challenges you see in agriculture today that you face as a farmer? So farming needs to be not only sustainable from like an environmental sense, but it needs to be sustainable for farmers. And to me, this comes down to the cost of land juxtaposed with the ridiculously cheap price of food. And one of my favorite quotes is by Joel Salatin. He says, we need to stop asking why organic food is so expensive and ask instead, why is processed food so cheap? And what I see is a fatal flaw in agriculture, and it has been affecting farmers across the United States specifically since we started farming. (laughs) Uh, And that problem is that we do not account for the cost of land when determining the prices of our food. For some reason, we see our land as a free asset when instead we should be passing that cost on to our customers. And, you know, what happens is we look from year to year at our financial situation as farmers and we scratch our heads as to why ends aren't meeting. Well, it's because so many of us only account for profit on our operating costs, not the investment of our land as a whole. So we have to ask, like, why, how has this become a problem? And I... I love Forrest Pritchard. He says it best uh, in his book, Start Your Farm. We, we end up growing food at artificially cheap prices, and we subsidize the bottom line with our own goodwill. But like, think about it, Caitlin, would any other business do this? Like, I can tell you as a self-employed photographer, I most certainly would not. I would account for the cost of rent on my photography studio as I go to price my photo sessions. That's just common sense. So then why? So, okay, we have to ask. How did this problem begin, and why has it become so systemic? Are you ready for a little history lesson? I am so ready. Go for (laughs) it. Awesome. Well, it's because the U.S. government used to give land away for free. And this started as early as the 1600s. And, you know, U.S. veterans after the Revolutionary War were given free acreage. The Homesteading Act of 1862 gave away 270 million acres of farmland for free. And they did that up until 1976. So in the U.S. right now, there are 900 million acres of farmland. This means that nearly one-third of our farmland was given away for free with no land investment cost. Now, thinking short-term, these actions helped feed a growing nation really quickly. But long-term, it's created an industry of farmers that have never had to account for the investment of their land when they go to price their food. And this way of pricing was sustainable from a business standpoint when family farms were diversified instead of specialized, meaning they had like a lot of different livestock, a lot of different crops. It was almost in resemblance to a permaculture farm where it was self-sustaining. But then 
something happened in 1973 that changed the face of American agriculture. The former Soviet Union had suffered a devastating wheat crop failure. They were a hungry nation. They were on the verge of crisis. And at the same time, the OPEC decision to restrict oil production caused oil prices to rise in the Middle East, which the U.S. was paying for, like money coming out of our pockets, going overseas with no return on investment. So our government decided the best thing to do was to grow as much grain as possible to help the Soviet Union out, who then would pay for the exported grain and then offset these dollars that had been sent overseas for oil. So in the government's mind, it was win-win-win, right? And the Secretary of Agriculture at the time, Earl Butts, he is infamous for saying this. He said the words, get big or get out of farming. And those words are in reference to this point in history. So in this push for profit, farmers got bigger, and focused and specialized on grain on the promise that more grain meant more money, like guaranteed profit. They took out huge loans to grow their operations. Some farmers were even turned away from banks because they were asking for too little when they went to expand. (laughs) It's crazy. But then in 1974, the Soviet Union was like, just kidding. We got our wheat growing issue figured out. We need none of your American wheat, but thanks anyway. And then with no one to sell their grain to and massive amounts of debt to pay off, farmers had the rug pulled out from underneath them. There was so much excess wheat, Caitlin, from this push to specialize, farmers were dumping it in parking lots and letting it rot. It just breaks my heart, you know? Like... (laughs) Then, in in order to financially survive, farmers would roll their debt forward to ride inflation. But then in 1980, farm real estate prices no longer rose fast enough for them to continue this practice. And that's when our farming economy fell into a severe credit crisis. Big farms started gobbling up small farms because those small farms couldn't cover costs anymore. In doing so, small towns withered away as former farmers moved to big cities to seek work. And I think that Mark Shepard says it best. This policy, this push of get big or get out, led to real estate cannibalism of rural America. And I see these huge tracts of land, even in Franklin, where we live. Paul and I desperately want to expand, you know? But we cannot afford the cost of 40 acres here in southeastern Milwaukee. It's typically priced close to a million dollars, and the farmer is only selling to commercial developers because he has to recoup these costs. Thus, we have to look far outside the bounds of a city center to find affordable land, which puts us in a small town that has very few customers. And then this brings us back to pricing. Consumers are becoming more educated about where their food comes from and how it's raised, as well as the toll that it takes on the environment. And I think this is amazing. This makes me so, so excited. But those educated consumers primarily live in urban centers. Small farmers who want to farm regeneratively, like us, usually don't have the capital to purchase land near urban centers and grow the products that that customer base is willing to pay for. So I think this is why farmers markets have become so popular. Honestly, farmers are willing to travel hundreds of miles to a market because they know that the city center offers the most educated customers willing to pay for the true cost of the food they're growing. So what I hope to see is more affordable land closer to city centers. I hope to see urban planners who understand the carbon footprint of zoning farmers further and further away from their customer base. And I really hope to see more customers educating themselves about where their food comes from. Those people are going to be willing to pay the prices that make our regenerative farms financially viable. So the crossroads that I see in agriculture now is will we let monocropping systems continue to destroy our environment, 
hurt farmers' financial viability, and push diversified farms further and further away from city centers? Or will we come together and create spaces for small farmers to grow in a regenerative way that's close to city centers, that pays them for their time and the true cost of their land, and creates a healthier, more connected community of people? Kelsey, my mind is exploding right now, and I am overwhelmed with all of the goodness that you just shared with us. I know. I know you are. <laughs> you know, these these details in history, like you have to go looking for them in order to understand why we are where we are right now. And I, I've said this before. I get like irrationally curious about things and <laughs> I like have to figure them out. And this was one of those things I had to figure out this problem. But that's good that you figured it out. And I think for farmers like yourself and myself, to continue to educate the consumer about the cost of food and what it actually costs to produce the food that's sitting on their plate versus how much they had to pay for it to get there. Yes, amen to that. We were at a conference, I think it was in the fall after we were done harvest, and one of the speakers said, and I don't know if he had quoted somebody or not, but the people who are complaining about the cost of good quality food, you're paying more for something right now instead of having to pay with your health later on in life. And yeah. that's something that really stuck with me and yes. is something that I continue to reach the good word on. We believe food is medicine in our home and that, you know, we we may not go to the doctor, but we are investing in our health every day by what we put in our mouth. Amen to that. So for anybody who's thinking about becoming a farmer or a homesteader or is currently a farmer or homesteader that's looking maybe to become more sustainable and regenerative. What are some words of wisdom that you can give them to start something that seems like such a huge daunting process that maybe, you know, the small steps that they can take? Absolutely. I think, you know, you're going to get funny looks from your community if you're the only one. <laughs> Who's like, maybe I should try this a little differently. I, for myself, I turned to books. I am a first generation farmer. So learning had to come from me and me only and it it had to be free. So the library was my favorite place and it still is. Uh, I say go to the library and check out as many books as you can. Start reading. Um, Mark Shepard is great. Forrest Pritchard is great. You know, anything by Sir Albert Howard, who's the father of modern day composting, you know, like get get your ducks in a row and really learn the foundations of permaculture and restorative agriculture before you get started so you can figure out what you like and what you want to try. Um, so often we'll put the cart before the horse with farming and we bite off way more than we can chew as we gear up to start or we decide to make change. And my advice always is like learn to say like this is enough or this is enough for now so that you don't run yourself ragged and burn yourself out because Rome wasn't built in a day. Like we we bought our land in 2000. Well, we saw the farm in 2015, bought it in 2016, and we opened our farm in 2018. Like it takes time. And We've made so many mistakes along the way, and it's mostly because we rushed, and it's because we, you know, put ourselves against this ticking clock that really didn't exist. It existed only in our head. So I say, slow down, take your time, do the research, find out what you really like, 
And if you can find mentors, oh my God, find them. I I was on the Female Farmer podcast with Audra and I she asked me like who my mentors have been and I have not had any. And that, you know, I, I talked about this on her podcast. It might, it could very well be the fact that I'm way too independent for my own good. Or it could be the fact that we just don't have a lot of regenerative, regenerative farmers in a place where they can help just yet. But I say, if you can go out there and if you can learn from someone, do it because they're going to have so much advice to give you. Like even now after three, four years of doing this, I'm like brimming with advice (laughs) for people when they come and seek me out and ask me questions. So that would be my advice. So listeners, if you're looking for a mentor, please contact Kelsey Jorison. She will be happy to help you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So speaking of books and information that is helpful, let's talk about the book that you have recently self-published. Yes, yes. I would love to talk about that. So I released my first book in November of 2018. It's called The Holistic Home, and it is the ultimate room-by-room guide on how to live more sustainably and holistically in your own home. So a lot of questions I get is, you know, why write this book? Well, <laughs> after spending several years in a tiny Chicago apartment, a couple years in a house in the burbs, and now, you know, almost four years on our farm, I can tell you that living sustainably is possible anywhere. No matter what size my home was, I was able to teach myself how to be a conscious consumer and do better by the earth. And listen, I know there is a dizzying amount of information on there on how to get started with living sustainably. And when I started my green living journey over a decade ago, I remember wishing desperately for just one simple, straightforward guide. I wanted one resource that would just show me what to do so I didn't get overwhelmed, showed me what products to swap, which habits to change, and how exactly to detox my home in order to live more holistically and sustainably. So since that didn't exist back in 2009, I started on my own. I read as many books as I could get my hands on. I researched everything. I mean, I was on like hardcore studies, like reading results and conclusions, you know, finding the toxins in my cleaning supplies, figuring out how I could cut down on waste. I tested so many eco-friendly products and through trial and error, I taught myself. So when I first started my green living journey, my friends and family would look on me, like they'd look at me and be like, okay, mild curiosity. But now 10 years later, I am the first person that they call when they have any type of earth-friendly and holistic living question, you know, whether that's a toxin-free mattress or how they can buy organic grass-fed beef from a local farmer. And you want to know why? It's because they saw the way that I transformed my life and my health and my home, and they wanted those changes for themselves. So, okay, what, what did my life look like before I went on this holistic and sustainable living journey. And I feel like this is a story a lot of people can identify with. I felt like my body was going to self-destruct. I was only 20 years old, Caitlin, but I had constant brain fog. Everything I ate felt like it was out to get me. I was always bloated. I had severe adult acne. I was 30 pounds overweight. I could not get a good night's sleep to save my life. I had insomnia. And, you know, top all that off with anxiety, just being through the roof. I was at the end of my rope. Like... (sighs) It was, it was just, it felt hopeless. And then I was diagnosed with celiacs and then my world just flipped upside down. You know, in that moment, I could have played the victim. I could have just thrown up my hands and <laughs> just like give it up. <laughs> but instead, I like hit my bottom and I was like, okay, you know what? This is an invitation to take a closer look at my life and my surroundings and my habits 
and go on this sustainable and holistic living journey. So first, I started with food. I created a really simple and manageable method that helped me organize grocery shopping to eat healthier. I taught myself how to make better cooking decisions in the kitchen. And I have successfully used these tricks for like a decade. And it's been easy. It's been awesome. And then I doubled down on beauty and body care products. Over the last five years, I have honed these DIY recipes for makeup, skincare, hair care. And of course, like I've tested all these organic natural products, just so many. And you know what? I have found out what works and what does not. (laughs) And there is a lot that does not, man. It is frustrating. So then I started to work on my everyday household items, you know, cleaning supplies, bed sheets, everything. I just took this fine-tooth comb through everything in my house that I was using day-to-day, and I developed these natural and effective DIY recipes for cleaning products like drain cleaner, potty powder, and I've tried, again, over like 150 companies worth of organic clothing, fair trade footwear, sustainable decor, and in doing so, I started to compile this list of you know the best companies that have the best products that put our health and the earth's well-being first. And then at that point, I was like, okay, it's time to look at my habits. Like, what am I doing every day in my life that could I could just switch around a little bit and it would help, you know, fix these last final things that I was dealing with with my health? And it felt like the final piece to the puzzle on how to heal my body. You know, these habit changes were so simple and easy, but they had this huge payoff for my well-being. And I realized that no one else was talking about them or trying them. So I took a step back and took stock of everything that had changed in my life over the last decade. I realized, okay, I had lost that stubborn 30 pounds that I gained in college. I had cleared up my adult acne. I had nixed my shopping habit. Can I get an amen? Amen, girl. (laughs) Oh, my God. I saved a ton of money in doing so. And then I was experiencing this, like, deep restorative sleep that honestly, like, I'd wake up and be like, man, I have risen from the dead. (laughs) And on top of that, I had reduced my anxiety quite a bit. You know, but the benefits, Caitlin, they didn't stop there. The more I realized, you know, and I cleared this nasty stuff out of my home, this light bulb went on that, you know, a toxin-free and holistic life meant also that a life, my life was in line with what was best for the planet. I discovered like all these habit changes that I needed to make were not only about me, but it was about our world and our and our only world at that. Not only did I get healthier, but I was making this positive impact on the world around me. And this is the true meaning of holistic, realizing that we are a part of a whole. Our health does not exist in a vacuum. So in my 10-year journey, I learned firsthand all the opportunities there were in my own home to do better for my health and in turn the health of the planet. From the kitchen to the bedroom, I used this holistic mindset daily, and I am living this vibrant, healthy life that also takes care of the earth. So I put all of this into my ebook. It's a 200-page comprehensive resource, takes you room by room, shows you exactly what habits to shift, what products to swap, and why. Like, it's not just like, do this, do that. It's the, it's the actual reasons as to why it is so important. Because you know what? Like, people don't like to be told what to do. <laughs> That's the reality. Like they need they need that feeling. They need to understand deeply why it's so important and the book does that for you. And I know it sounds like a lot at once. Here's the thing, and I know you know this Caitlin since you've read my book, but it is not a race. It is a journey, and I know that firsthand. 
You can absolutely go at your own speed. You can try things out slowly. But the Holistic Home ebook is here to show you how to start right where you are so that you can live the sustainable life that you love that will transform your health and your home one step at a time. Because the reality is like to live a healthy life, you don't have to spend 24 hours at the gym and force feed yourself green smoothies. <laughs> what you need is a holistic mindset that connects you with what's best for your body and in turn what's best for the earth. And that's exactly what the Holistic Home teaches you. Your book has been such a blessing in my life. I refer to oh. it. I refer to it almost daily and I call it my green Bible. And <laughs> that it, makes my heart so happy. It literally has changed the way that I consume, the way that I consume products, the products that I put on my skin. You know, I five years ago would have never even taken the time to think about. I will admit to you, I didn't grow up recycling. And now if I can't recycle it, I don't want it. <gasps> yes. Oh my God. That makes like, oh, that is, that's it right there, Caitlin. That's exactly it. I get it. Like we are not taught, you know, it just, it wasn't ingrained in us as kids and we have to relearn this way of thinking as adults. So I commend you. You're killing it. Oh, thank you. I am just trying to do my best and I want our listeners to be killing it too. So Kelsey has graciously offered a promo code for the listeners to have a little discount. Tell us about that. Yes. Listeners can grab the ebook at my website, 15% off at checkout. Use the discount code wildrosefarmer15, all lowercase, no spaces. And then you too can have a copy of the Green Bible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that. Okay, Kelsey, tell me what the most rewarding part about being a farmer is to you. I think it's the kinship with nature. And it's, you know, rekindling the sense that we are all connected. And that, you know, nature is not something to be conquered or controlled or manipulated. And that ultimately we're animals. Human beings are animals too. And in working the farm and being with my animals and learning as much as I can about closed loop cycles and how to take care of the earth, I feel like I've like met myself. Like I've been able to like be the person that I was born to be. So it's a, it's a sense of like coming, coming home, like truly coming home. So that's what farming has done for me. That's beautiful. Makes me weepy. Yeah. Oh. I think every time I've asked this question, I have like sparked a tear in my eye. And it's a good question. I think everyone just has their own sense of of the feeling of what a farmer actually means to them or a rancher or a homesteader. And it all basically comes back down to to the land and being a steward of the land and how yeah. the land helps you grow more as much as you help it grow. Exactly. Yes. All right. So Kelsey, tell the listeners where they can find you after this episode. Totally. So my website is greenwillowhomestead.com. On there is my blog. There's a bunch of fun initiatives if you want to hop on board. I've got some free guides. And of course, there's the ebook. And then on Instagram, you can find me at Kelsey Jorison. And I'm sure you'll drop links in the show notes because I could spell my last name if you want me to. <laughs> Don't bother. I'll put it in the show. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> 
And then we have a a podcast. Uh, My dear friend Becca at Organically Becca and I have a Green Living Sustainable Holistic Awesomeness podcast. It's called the Positively Green Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram at Positively Green Podcast. And you can also just search for us. We both house the podcast on our websites. We don't have a separate website for the podcast. So either of our blogs will get you to all our episodes. They are like the tag team of green living and it is the best podcast and I look for every time. You're so you're so sweet. We have so much fun. I feel like, you know, we're on our 13th episode now and we've really like found a groove and like we can be super chill and like work off script and, you know, interview our guests and have a really nice time. So it's we're we're hitting our our groove now, which has been really fun. Yes, and I'm loving it. So make sure after you listen to this podcast, you head on over and listen to the Positively Green podcast as well. That is it for me today. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat with me today. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me on. This was so much fun to wax poetic about farming and living sustainably and all the things. I'm still your number one fan, even probably more than... (laughs) more than I was before so (laughs) oh I adore you (laughs) hey guys thank you so much for listening to this episode of the rural woman podcast I hope you enjoyed learning a bit more about Kelsey and her sustainable living lifestyle over at Green Willow Homestead I wanted to let you guys know about something that has recently started as in two days ago I have opened up a group on Facebook. Now, this group uh, is for you, the listener. I have received messages and emails and all of the things wanting to know what the heck this female farmer group is that I've been talking about on the Royal Woman podcast since it started. So if you remember back from episode one, Tara Beaver Coronado She started this female farmer group over on Instagram almost a year ago now, and there is a group of about 20 of us in there um, that communicate basically on a daily basis. We've all become best Instagram friends, and we just support each other. We talk to each other about any problems that we're having on our farm, any successes that we have, and it's basically just like a girl gang of female farmers. Now, I have gotten the request for people to join said group of female farmers. And as much as I would love to add all of you, there is a limit of how many people you can have in a group on Instagram. So I brainstormed, I thought about it. I was like, how can I make this the most inclusive group without having a limit of how many people we can have on there, that kind of thing. So I am taking it over to Facebook. I have opened up a group called the Rural Woman Podcast Community. You can search it on Facebook. You can also find me on Facebook now. I have finally caved and Wild Rose Farmer has its own Facebook page. So if you look up Wild Rose Farmer or you can look up the Rural Woman Podcast Community, you can find me over there as well as all of the guests so far on the Rural Woman Podcast will be added in there as well. We have made the commitment uh, to you, the listener, that we are there to support you. We want to hear from you. We want to talk to you. We want to hear your successes. We want to hear what you're struggling with. 
we want to hear all of the things. And I am so excited to be in community with each and every one of you. And I hope you join me over on Facebook at the Rural Woman Podcast Community. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast. For show notes, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com. You can stay connected with me on Instagram at wildrosefarmer. If you love the show, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Plus, share it with a friend. We'll see you next time.